good evening, Hope Bible Church, Ottawa. Pastor Ray here. Happy New Year. Love you all so much. And right now, I have the joy and privilege to introduce to you our guest preacher who's going to be launching us into 2022. Come on, great things ahead. Amen. Go, Lord. And our guest preacher tonight's name is Steve Croker. And Steve comes to us from Living Hope Church in Georgetown, where he serves as the senior pastor there. Living Hope Church is part of the Great Commission Collective, which is the fellowship of churches that we are a part of. And Steve and his wife Melissa and their four precious children are here to minister with us tonight. So thankful for you, Croakers. We're praying for you. Lord, do a great work in Georgetown. Amen. Come on for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, loved ones, let's get ready. Open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. And while Steve comes up, let's put our hands together and give him a warm Hope Ottawa welcome. Wow, that's, that's, quite, the, that's quite the introduction. I'm so glad to be here. Unfortunately, my wife and kids were, were not able to come. They stayed home. We kind of had a change of plans. But it's, a, it's an honor and a joy to be with you guys, especially on New Year's, on a special day to kick off the year. It's an honor. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to look today at verse 1 to verse 18, a passage that has really become one of my favorite, favorite passages uh, there's so much in here that's so critical for the health and the vitality of the church. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 to 18, I, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as I, as I read God's word for us as an act of reverence and expectancy. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 to 18, he, here's the word of God. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshelam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and, gave, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amen. God, we thank you for your word. And as we gather tonight, we pray that you would speak to us. Your spirit would convict and instruct us, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, fill us with faith and joy, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, on the wall of my office is a framed picture of a, a dingy dark room in the backside of an old castle overlooking Eisenach, Germany. It may not look like much. If you saw the picture, you would wonder, why is that even up? That's not a pretty picture. Uh, but there's in the picture a, a small desk and a small chair with wood walls showing their thousand-year-old age. It wouldn't look like much, but in this very room in 1521, God changed the world forever. See, for about a thousand years, the only available translation of the Bible was the Latin Vulgate. The problem was that very few people at that, that time spoke or understood Latin. Most people had not actually read the Bible themselves, and even most priests had not actually read the Bible. But in this room in 1521, Martin Luther, having been condemned by the Pope and hidden away in the castle, translated the New Testament from Greek into German. It was printed on the brand new technology just invented, the Gutenberg Press, in the following year, and it changed not only Germany, but the world forever. In a few years, as the Reformation spread, translations from Greek were appearing in most European languages, and the Bible was unleashed on Europe. Now, at this time in England, there was the death penalty waiting for anyone who even possessed even a portion of the Scriptures in English. But as of yet, no complete translation had even been made. It was in 1525, just a few years later, William Tyndale 
left England, traveled to Germany where he found the freedom and safety to translate the New Testament from Greek into English. And it was printed there in Germany and smuggled back with him into England. And English readers were able to read the Bible for the very first time. Eventually, William Tyndale was caught. He was condemned as a heretic, strangled, and then burned at the stake. Like, they really had to make sure, right? It was pretty, uh, pretty extensive. If the Bible is available to you in your language, translated into the language that you can know and understand, you are indebted to men like Luther and Tyndale who risked their lives, gave their lives to get the Bible into the hands of everyone. They believed that God's word was for everyone and needed to be read and understood by all people. And this belief isn't just a key belief of the Reformation. It's actually core to the scriptures themselves, as we're going to see in our passage tonight. We could look at many other places as well. But you know, at other times and in other places, the church community did not have access to the scriptures that we do. The word was unavailable to them in their language, and so there were either it was not translated or there was not physical copies available to them. But what's so tragic is that we, who have nearly unlimited translations in English and in other languages, if we speak those languages as well, we have nearly unlimited copies and biblical resources, more than could possibly be read in a lifetime. We, with all of this at our fingertips, are growing increasingly biblically illiterate. If you read the Bible in English and have the internet, just read the Bible in English and you have the internet, you have more access to the scriptures and more scriptural resources than any generation before you. You have a wealth beyond what Luther or Tyndale could possibly have imagined even existed, and you have it at your fingertips. And yet all this access has not led us to more knowledge, understanding, or transformation. And so I have to conclude that in previous generations, the Bible was not known because it was not available, but in our generation, the Bible is not known because we have not opened it. We have not opened it. And where the scriptures are lost and forgotten, so is the gospel, and so is true worship. Where the Bible is not opened, preached, and obeyed, the church shrivels and dies. And friends, we are seeing this in the country of Canada, in our own nation today, where there are many, many buildings with the word church out front, and yet the word is not preached, and so the church has died or is on palliative care. But the way to renewal, the way to renew a church, the way to renew a country is always through the recovery of the word of God. We see that through history. We see that happening today. It is through the word that God renews his people. But so often the church is tempted to believe that so-called progress is the way to renewal. That for the church to be revived and renewed, we need to move beyond the Bible because we've learned more things, right? But we, we, we come up with new interpretations and, and new ways of thinking and we have progress and we progress past the Bible and therefore abandon the very hope we have for renewal. But both history and the scriptures themselves bear out that the way to renewal is through a return to the word of God, embracing its authority, embracing its power. 
And we see that in our text today. So Nehemiah, we're, we're kind of jumping in the middle of the book, but Nehemiah chapter 1 to 7 is really all about rebuilding the wall. When you think of the book of Nehemiah, often you think about Nehemiah builds the wall, but the wall's been built. The wall's done, and yet the book doesn't end there, because that's not the end of Nehemiah. That's not even the climax of Nehemiah. Is, is the, we, we realize that Nehemiah is ultimately not about the wall, because there's a bigger problem. Nehemiah realizes that the wall was not the biggest problem that the city faced. See, the holy city needs a holy people. And, and bigger than a security problem, they had a spiritual problem. And he knows that the renewal of God's people will not come through a bigger wall, but come through the recovery of God's word. And that's where we arrive at today. He assembles God's people, and he calls for Ezra the priest, the scribe, to, to teach and instruct. And so we see today the renewing of God's people here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And there's three critical components that we see in this passage that are critical not only in Nehemiah chapter 8, but are critical for us and for every church. And they start with this, number one, the Bible read, the Bible read. And we see that in verse 1 to 6. It starts with the, the reading of the Bible. So let's glance down again, verse 1 to 6 of our text. Here's what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shammah and Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand and Padiah, Mishael, Melchiah, Hashem, Hashbanadah, Zechariah and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and he opened it and as he opened it all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered amen, amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We'll pause there. And so we see, first thing, the Bible read. So what's happening is it's the first day of the seventh month. It's the Feast of Trumpets, a holy day of celebration. And the focus is here is on the gathering of the people. So all the people gather together. Between verse 1 and verse 12, there are 13 references to the people. Nine of those are to all the people. So the nation has assembled. And emphatically, it, we're told twice that both men and women and all who could understand, it said, right? So not just some of the people, all the people. Not just the academics or the priests or the older people or just the men or anything like that. But all God's people gathered together on this special day. It's an assembly of God's people. And the church is built off this picture of an assembly. The church is an ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering of God's people. As we had gatherings of God's people, assembly in the Old Testament, we have an assembly in the New Testament. And verse 1 says, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And the question is, who's they? Who is calling for the book? And the answer is, it's all the people. From the beginning of that, that verse, all the people, they are the they. So the assembled people are calling for the book. They want to hear God's word. They come with anticipation and eagerness. And friends, this is the beginning of renewal. People are hungry for the word of God, 
calling for the book. Bring out the word of God. We will not be content or satisfied until you bring out the word of God. This is a key ingredient for renewal. It's the first step is people hungry for the word. And so they call on Ezra and they tell him to bring out the book. Who's Ezra? Ezra 7.6 says he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And it says Ezra set his heart to study the the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra's a Bible scholar who had come to Jerusalem in the second wave of the returning exiles. He sought to bring renewal to the people through the word. Here's what happens. They call for Ezra, and they have a platform, and they, you know, they have a platform there so that Ezra can stand on it, and people can see him, and he's above the people, visible to him. It's really emphatic that they do this. It's probably some sort of pulpit or something because it says that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. It's really important that everyone can see Ezra, and it's really important that they can, everyone can see that Ezra is reading from the book because that's where the authority is. And this is really shaping for churches even today. You know, before the Reformation, before the Protestant Reformation, you know what the most important piece of furniture was in the church? It was the altar. The altar, because the Lord's Supper was front and center, the Eucharist, right? And the people were behind the divide, and the priest stood between the people and the Eucharist. And he was mediating the relationship. You come to God through me, right? With the Reformation and the recovery of the Bible, there came a change in furniture. Like physically the churches changed when they became Protestant, when they became Reformation churches. The altar was moved to the side, and the pulpit was literally moved from the side to the center. And on the pulpit was placed a Bible, and behind the Bible stands a preacher. And this is what we see from Ezra. He stood front and center, and he opens the book in the sight of all the people. And still today, in biblical churches around the world, no matter the culture, you will find a platform. And on the platform, there is a preacher. And in front of the preacher, there is an open Bible. And in this, we communicate where the authority is. Right? In God, it's God's people gathered in God's house, so God sets the agenda of what's going to happen. And so we read God's word in God's house. This sets the foundation. This sets the precedent for what God's people should always do as they gather together. So Ezra gets up in front of the people. They can see him. They can see the book. He opens the book, and he reads the word of God to the people from morning to midday. That's what Ezra does. What what do the people do? Well, when he opened the book, all the people stood. And this is a public and corporate sign of their, their reverence for the word, that they're accepting God's authority. They, you know, they don't stand for the reading of the news, right? They don't, they don't stand for the weather forecast. They stand because this word is a special word. It's God's word. They stand because they're accepting God's authority, They stand with expectancy because they're hearing from God through his word. And this is why I love it when churches stand for the hearing of God's word. I don't think it's something we have to do. I don't think it's sinful if you don't. But I think it's, you know, I think the important thing is a reverent and submissive heart. That's what matters. But I do think that body posture can be helpful and meaningful. Think, Think about it. It means something when a young man gets down on one knee 
in order to propose marriage. He could ask the question standing up, sure. He could text the question. But it means something, doesn't it? When his, his body posture says something in that moment. It means something if we stand for the national anthem. That, that means something. Remove your hat and you stand for the singing of the anthem. The posture of the body can help us get the heart. It can reflect the heart and it can help train the heart. And so it's helpful. It's significant. It's meaningful when God's people stand for the reading of God's word. That's what we see them doing here in the text. And look at look what happens. Verse 3. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You know, the scriptures themselves have much to say to preachers and shepherds in the church about their responsibility to teach the Bible faithfully to their people. There are expectations and demands on preachers. It's a heavy burden to study and teach faithfully. There's an account that has to be given. But, but we can't stop there. There is a responsibility on the hearers as well. There's a responsibility on hearers to, to listen to the word attentively, to submit themselves to God's word, to apply it to their life and to obey it. And so there's a responsibility on the teacher to faithfully announce God's word with accuracy and clarity, faithfulness. And there's a responsibility on the listener to be attentive, to hear and respond appropriately, to, to have a heart ready to receive Ears attentive, a life ready to be transformed by God's Spirit and God's Word. And so, when he finishes reading, they all said amen and they worship the Lord. Because this is the right response to the Word. The right response to the Word is worship. We burst forward in praise, thanking God, honoring Him, glorifying Him for who He is and what He's done. We hear the Word and we respond by worshiping. So the first step to renewing a community of believers is to return to the reading of the Word. The, the New Testament echoes this as well. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, Devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. For young Timothy to be faithful and fruitful in his ministry, Paul urges him to devote himself, commit himself, to the public reading of Scripture. There are so many things that a pastor could devote their time to. Uh, unlimited things that a pastor could devote their time to. I, I constantly get Facebook ads and emails of people try, telling me, try, trying to sell me, right? Buy my book, buy my system to revitalize and grow your church, right? I, I know you're thinking, he gets very different ads than I do, and that's okay. So there, there are so many things that are claiming to be a source to revitalize, to grow, to strengthen your church. Somehow the internet found out I'm a pastor and I get all these people trying to pitch me their thing. But Paul knows for Timothy to lead well, he must devote himself to the public reading of scripture and to its teaching. To create a community of the word, a people who call for the book and are living under its authority. And when God has commanded us to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, why would we abandon this critical practice? I mean, what better activity could we possibly be doing? What, what better thing do we have to do than the critical thing that God has told us to do as a church? 
Because, friends, where the Bible is read, there comes revival. The darkest times in church history, the ugliest times in church history, were those where there was no access to the Bible. Where the Bible is closed or lost, their sin, darkness, ignorance reigned, and the gospel's forgotten. When the Bible is found again, there comes revival and renewal. And so the first critical ingredient to renewal is the Bible, the Bible being read. Second thing, see in our text, is the Bible understood. The Bible understood. That's number two, the Bible understood. Take a look with me, verse 7. Verse 7, also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So our second point is the Bible understood. You know, verse 7 begins with 13 names, right? we got some pretty wild names. Maybe there's some baby names there you can consider for future kids. But these men with the great names, these are the Levites. And the Levites are there to assist with the teaching after the reading of the scriptures, these men are among the people helping them to understand. They're answering questions, they're clarifying, they're explaining, maybe they're giving practical applications. And look at verse 8, really important. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. See, their situation was not unlike ours. The Old Testament law was written in Hebrew centuries before this. This generation of people living in Jerusalem had grown up in a foreign land. They, they primarily spoke Aramaic, and for most of them, their understanding of Hebrew would have been limited. The context of the scriptures were quite different from their, their situation. And so while it all seems like Old Testament to us, it's, it's actually quite a different situation that they're living in than from when the law was first given. And so Ezra not only read to them, but he explained the text to them. He helped them to understand it, helped them to apply it in their language and culture and context, showing its relevance and showing its authority in their situation. And what happened as they heard, they understood they understood, because, and because they understood, they wept when they heard the law. Why? Because they were convicted. As they heard the word of God, they realized that how they had been failing to keep it. As they learned, they realized, oh man, my life is not in line. And so they wept out of you know, an attitude of repentance at what they had failed to do. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. The scariest thing is when you read the Word of God, 
You learn of your sin and rebellion and you feel nothing. That's the scariest thing. Is you read and you feel nothing. You're just so numb to the word of God and the work of the spirit. That you read and feel nothing. See in order to receive the the good news of the gospel. We must first receive the bad news of our sin. Is your heart moved by the preaching of the word? Does the gospel excite you? Does the word convict you and comfort you and move you? Or... Or are you callous and cold to God's word and feel nothing as it's read, nothing as it's preached? That's the scariest, scariest situation. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and all the Levites helping, they urge the people not to weep, but to rejoice. Because it's the first day of the seventh month, right? We read that verse 2. It's the day of the Feast of Trumpets. It's supposed to be a day of rejoicing and not mourning. Yes, they are sinful. It's good they feel conviction of their sin, but God is merciful and God is gracious. And so this is a day of rejoicing in their salvation. And look at verse 12, how it ends with the people, they went their way to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Here's the key. The Bible needs to be read, but then also explained so that it's understood. So our goal is not just to read as if just passing the words, pass my brain, my eyes scrolling past words is enough. But we, we not only read, but we explain the task of the preachers, the same as Ezra and the Levites, what they're doing here. Read and explain, read and explain. So the sermon should be a window to the original. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a brilliant and interesting person that you should come and hear me. All right? I, I'm really not that remarkable. I'm an ordinary guy. But what I am... What I am and what my life is committed to is I'm a tour guide. I'm a tour guide of the Word of God, showing you the Word, explaining the tough bits, maybe translator, showing how it fits together so you can experience it yourself, right? So I, years ago, I went on a trip to Egypt. I went on a, a teaching trip. I was in Egypt doing some preaching and teaching, and I had a day off at the end of my week there. And so we hired a tour guide to drive us around Cairo and to show us the historical sites. And I did not go to experience my guide, right? He was not worth the trip. He was a very nice guy. He was very helpful. But he was not the reason we were there. But he was a good guide. So what he did is he took us places. He took us to the pyramids and to the museums and these sites. And he showed us where to look. And he translated the signs we couldn't read. He explained the significance. He explained the history of things I didn't know. He enhanced our experience because he knew he wasn't the star. His job was to... Help us experience the sights of Egypt and to help us understand, to translate and to explain and make accessible all these things for us to experience. And that's what I think of when I think of the Word of God. You're not here to meet me. You're here to hear God's Word. I'm just a tour guide of the Scriptures here to help enhance your experience of God and His Word. And this, this is what we call expositional preaching. That is, we are committed to expositing or explaining the text so when people hear, they understand. The goal is to draw out what is there, not to put in what doesn't belong. All right, To draw out what's there, exposit, to explain the text, to unleash the text. John Stott said, to expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and to expose it to view. 
The expositor opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. That's the job. That's the job. And so Great Commission Collective Churches are committed to expositional preaching. It's one of the things I love about GCC. Because so many churches and denominations have walked away from expositional preaching to their own doom. But as we gather as churches, we will open the Bible. We will read it. We will declare in a way that people can understand and respond. The message of the sermon will come from the message of the text. It's God's house, and so God will set the agenda for what we talk about, what we discuss, what we learn. We are not here to learn from people like myself or Pastor Ray or others. We are not that interesting. We are not that important. We are here to learn from God through His Word. That's where the power is. David Larson, uh, a historian, he wrote a book on the history of preaching that was quite lengthy and extensive and detailed and fascinating. And he concluded the whole book, it's like a thousand page book on the history of preaching. By, he concludes at the very, very end by saying this, when preaching has been strong in the Christian church, the church has been strong. When preaching has been weak, the church has been weak. Preaching is by no means the only factor, but it is an obvious and critical one. And so the Bible must not only be read, it must be explained, it must be preached, it must be taught so that people understand, so that people understand. The third critical ingredient in renewal is this, the Bible obeyed, the Bible obeyed. And we see this as we look at verse 13 to verse 18, you can look with me. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, so here we see the Bible obeyed. So what happens is the next day after that first day, the second day, the, a group of families, people come back for more Bible time with Ezra. Key leaders and priests, Levites, they come to study the scripture some more. And one of the things that Ezra taught them on day two was God's instructions for the Feast of Booths. You can read it in Leviticus 23. And so the people are learning about this for the first time. They hadn't heard this before. So first off, what is a booth? What's a booth? A booth or a tabernacle, it's a tent, a temporary shelter. At this feast, all the people come to Jerusalem within the walls of Jerusalem, and they, they make temporary shelters, these tents, out of branches and leaves, and so they kind of grab sticks and leaves and branches, and they make these temporary shelters 
in Jerusalem. And they all sleep in their shelters within the walls of Jerusalem. So the people build booths on, on a flat roof of their house or for those outside Jerusalem in the marketplaces and in the courtyards and kind of all the public squares, anywhere they really could. And so everyone essentially goes camping for a week, right? And why? Why are they all going camping? They all go camping. The purpose is to remember how their ancestors lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness and how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and given them this land where they now have homes and cities. And so they go camping to be reminded of how God saved them out of a life of camping. And so it's, it's a way of remembering and celebrating what God had done for them as a people. And so as the people are learning about this, they're learning about the Feast of Booths, they realize it's coming up, like it's coming up in less than a couple weeks. It's the second of the month, the Feast of Booths starts on the 15th of the month. So crazy thing happens, they do it. Everyone does it. They'd never heard of this before. They had, this had been forgotten. But they immediately, they just get up and do it. They make plans and all of them do it. They drop everything to obey. They go out and they get branches and they make themselves tents on their roofs and in the temple courts and in the public squares. And for seven days, they live in their booths. And I found this really remarkable. Look at this phrase in verse 17. It says, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people had not done so. Had not done so. Wait, so nobody celebrated the Feast of Booths since the day of Joshua? All through the monarchy, the reign of Saul, the reign of David, Solomon? It's pretty wild. That's what it says. Now, it, it may mean that they partially celebrated, but not in the way they were supposed to. It's a little bit unclear, but whatever happens, these people heard it and obeyed it and obeyed it fully for the first time in about a thousand years. It's amazing. They did it. They, they, nobody said, that's not what we've done in the past. They repented and they did it. They read the Bible, they understood the Bible, and then they obeyed the Bible. And what is the result of this obedience? Verse 17 makes it very clear. And there was very great rejoicing. Very great rejoicing. Friends, we often believe the lie that obeying the Bible will be hard and sad and tiresome and unbearable and painful. It may be hard. It may cost us. But I'm here to tell you it is also the path to your greatest joy. Satan will tempt you to believe that obeying God will rob you of your joy. He will tempt you to believe that life is a dichotomy between obeying God and enjoying life. And you have to choose when in reality, obeying God will lead you to the greatest joys. So Satan will tell you that to obey God will rob you of joy, but this is exactly wrong. Because the false joys that are offered in sin and disobedience always reveal themselves in time to be counterfeit joys. They offer joy and satisfaction, but they always renege on their promises. You do this, you'll be happy. Right? You just need this spouse. You just need this car. You just need this job. You just need this money. Pursue this pleasure. Pursue that thing. And then you will be happy and satisfied and you will know that you're loved and you will matter to the world. And they always renege on those promises. It's never enough. They never follow through. 
Sin is promises offered and broken. But in God's word, in obeying God in the gospel, we find joy. Not only joy now, but a joy that multiplies and grows in time and explodes into eternity. Walking with God, walking in a life of obedience, a closeness to Him, set free from the slavery of our corrupted desires. This is the life that we were made for. It's the good life. It's where the joy is. And so we see that the people obeying did not rob them of their joy at all. Instead, there was very great rejoicing, as there always is when God's people know Him through His Word and obey Him. And so, friends, we can't just read the Bible. We can't just explain the Bible. We must obey the Bible. The work of the preacher is to read and explain, read and explain, read and explain. The work of the hearer is to listen, believe, and obey. And for a church to be renewed by the Word, it must read the Word, it must understand the Word, it must obey the Word. Without obedience, what happens is a church gets a bigger and bigger head. It learns more and more things, it gets more and more information, it gets a bigger and bigger head while its body remains shrunken and sickly. You imagine it, a church that knows the word, hears the word, reads the word, understands the word. Think of a person that's incredibly sickly and small with a huge, it's like a big bobblehead, right? Huge head full of information, but sick and dying with the body. And so, knowing the Bible is pointless without obedience. So, I, I have four kids. You saw my picture before. I have four kids. And so, I feel like I have a part-time job turning off lights, shutting doors, putting things away, right? Just sort of like it takes up like 20 hours a week, just kind of turning off lights and putting things away. So I regularly find myself saying something like, dear child, please put away your toy. It doesn't go here, right? And occasionally in their less good moments, they might say something like this. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And I go, do they know? (laughs) Do they know? They claim to know, they say they know, but they don't do, right? They, they know where it goes, but they don't put it away. So they say, I know, I know. Do you know? For so many of us, we know the scriptures. We know what God is calling us to do. Maybe even tonight, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know what God is calling you to do. It is not unclear to you. God has revealed it. You know what God is calling you to do. But God isn't calling us to know stuff, but to act on that knowledge, to obey that calling, to step into the good life, away from our sin, away from our idols, away from the things that are tripping us up and slowing us down, to run to Him in obedience, to follow Him with all that we have. We don't want to be the kids that know what we ought to do and don't do it, but to run to Him and to obey And find the joy that is ours in Him. Just as there's a world of difference between knowing where the toys go and actually putting them away, there's a world of difference between knowing that God is trustworthy and actually trusting Him. There's a world of difference between knowing that our behavior is sinful and actually repenting of it. There's a world of difference between knowing that God is loving and actually living as though you're loved. And so we don't want just to have knowledge without action. We need to do. We need to receive. We need to believe. We need to repent. We need to trust. We need to know that we are loved. 
James chapter 1 warns us of the fool who hears the word of God, instantly forgets it, and walks away unchanged. You're like a person who can't remember what you look like. You look in the mirror, and then you forget what you look like. Not very smart at all. Very, very foolish, right? But the person, James 1 says, but the person who hears, understands, and obeys, they will be blessed in their doing. That's what it says. See, that's where the blessing is. There are things that God always promises to bless. One of them is obeying His Word. There's always blessing when we hear God's Word and respond. And so, friends, as we start a new year, great great time to ask questions about what our life looks like, what our priorities are. The world is going to tell us, right, there's a bunch of things you have to do, resolutions you have to make, stuff you have to do in your own power, in your own strength, for your own glory, right? You know, you're going you're gonna to go to the gym, and you're going to do this, and you're going to make these habits, you're going to do this, and, you're, and by next week, you're going to be done with it. But really, it's a great question to ask. What kind of person are you going to be? We often hope in the calendar to renew us, right? That's essentially what we do at this time of year. We hope in the calendar. Because I've always failed at getting better in this thing, but, you know, it's January 1st, so there's hope. Why? Because the calendar changed. We're really putting our hope in the calendar, but guess what? That always fails. Calendars can't change us, right? We're not going to find renewal in the calendar. However, we have a God. We have a God who renews us by His Word. And so if we're looking to the calendar to renew us and give us hope for a better life, It's going to fail by next week, maybe the week after. But as we look to God, as we seek Him, He promises to renew us by His Spirit through His Word. So there's hope for us. There's hope for us. So what kind of person will you be? What kind of church will you be? Hope Ottawa, what kind of church will you be? In some churches, the Bible is not read. Not read at all. Some people, some Christians don't read the Bible. It results in ignorance and darkness. And the people there are starving to death. I have sat in church services in this country where the Bible is not open. The Bible is only referenced in passing. This is pastoral malpractice. The preacher should be fired for abandoning his post. A church where the Bible is not opened and read is a church that is starving to death. It will grow increasingly unhealthy, confused, and sickly until it dies. And the people in those churches have a tough decision to make. Either they need to start calling for the book... Or they need to start planning the church's funeral. In some other churches, the word is read but not rightly explained or understood. The people are deceived and confused and they're told all sorts of new things and fancy new scholars. They're convinced by the preacher to not believe what is clearly in the text. The word is read but the people are led away from the clear truths of God's word and the result is deception. People believe they're following God, but they're confused. They've confused truth for a lie, and they no longer trust and obey the plain meaning of the text. The word is read, but it's not rightly taught, and so therefore it's not understood. And this is dangerous. These churches are walking away from the truth of God's word. In other churches, the word is read and explained, but not obeyed. The brain is full, the heart and the hands are shriveled. Passages are read, sermons are preached, verses are memorized, doctrines are explained, but the Word of God is never applied and obeyed. The text is known in theory, but not in practice. The result is hypocrisy. The people know the truth, but they do not live it out. 
Friends, let's be a people who are always calling for the book. Never satisfied until the scriptures have been read, explained, and applied. Not content to learn about the Bible, but eager to be transformed by it. And so as we begin a new year, as we begin 2022, let's run back to the only place for real transformation. Let's run to God who promises to renew his people by his spirit through his word. As individuals, as a church, let's run to the word of God for hope, for renewal, for transformation. Let's be a people who truly believe that personal and corporate renewal comes as people return to the word of God. We see it in the scriptures, we see it in church history, we see it all around us. Let's always be ready and eager to hear the word and respond. Let's be quick to submit our ideas, our habits to the authority of God's word. Let him be in charge when there's conflict to submit to God's word. Let's come to the feast of God's word and not leave until we're full and satisfied and changed. Let's be a church that's always calling for the book. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your word. We recognize the incredible gift that it is. We recognize that there are people in other parts of the world or in previous generations who did not have the scriptures available to them as we have, that we are wealthy in God's word. You have resourced us so incredibly much. What a gift we have. I pray, God, that we would not be found to be ignorant because we have closed the book. Help us to be faithful to immerse ourselves in your word. I pray that your spirit would renew us. And so, God, I pray for every individual person here that we would read the word, that we would be committed to gathering with the church as often as we possibly can to sit under the preaching of God's word. As we read and hear the word, I pray that by your spirit we would understand that you would speak to us and make clear to us what we ought to do, what we ought to believe, what we must, how we must respond. And God, I pray by your spirit you would equip us and empower us to obey, to make radical steps of obedience, to experience life transformation by your spirit through the word. So I pray there may be individuals here today that know what they ought to do. God, I pray you'd give them the courage and faith to do it. By your spirit, there would be radical steps. As we begin a new year, this is, may this not be a year of sin and destructive habits, but a year of renewal, a year of transformation by your word and by your spirit. So God, I pray and we pray, change us by your word, make us new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with me as we uh, sing our last song?